Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. As I mentioned in the last housekeeping, there is a subscription policy change happening on the podcast. And uh, this will be going into effect on Wednesday, May 1st. So in order to have access to subscriber-only content on my website, uh, you will need an active monthly subscription. This means that those of you who never subscribed monthly or whose subscriptions have lapsed, uh, and this includes anyone who used to support the podcast through Patreon, will need to start a monthly subscription at samharris.org. Now, as always, if you cannot afford to support the podcast, you know I don't want money to be the reason why you can't get access to my content. So if you really can't afford a monthly subscription, you need only email us at info at samharris.org, and we will open a free account for you. But you will need to either subscribe or send us that email in order to get behind the paywall going forward. And again, that change starts May 1st. And that includes access to the live town hall, the Ask Me Anything episode of the podcast that's coming up on May 9th. That's in Los Angeles, and that will be videotaped and streamed live on my website at 8 o'clock Pacific time. Uh, and this will be interesting. This is an experiment, and if it works, we may do all of our AMA episodes this way. We will see what value is added with a live audience. Anyway, those tickets sold out, I think, in 20 minutes. So that's great. I look forward to meeting you all, and we should have fun. Again, the video will be streamed live on the website, and a final cut will be posted there. So if you're in some time zone totally out of sync with Los Angeles, you need not worry. The episode will be available to you as well. As always, reviews of the podcast in iTunes are very helpful, and this is also true for the Waking Up app. Please keep those reviews coming. Those affect our visibility in the App Store and therefore help determine how many people are made aware of the app. And again, I gotta say, releasing this app has been extremely gratifying. Honestly, is the one thing I've done where there is no distance between my intentions and the apparent effect of what I have produced out in the world. As you know, the app is continually under development and only getting better for your input. So all your feedback is much appreciated. And as you know, our policy for subscription to the app is also the same. If you actually can't afford it, just send an email to info at wakingup.com and we will give you a free year on the app. And if your luck hasn't changed at the end of that year, send us another email. I believe there are some seats left for my event at the Wiltern in Los Angeles with Mingyu Rinpoche in July. You can find out about that on my website at samharris.org forward slash events. That is the first event associated with the Waking Up app. And that event is being co-sponsored by UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. And now for today's podcast. Today I'm speaking with Shane Parrish. Shane is a blogger and podcaster. His website is Farnham Street at fs.blog. And his podcast is The Knowledge Project. Many of you know him, I believe. There was recently a profile in the New York Times about him that brought him into greater prominence. He has a 
background in computer science, and he worked for many years in the Canadian equivalent of the NSA. In fact, he briefly worked with the NSA as well. But now he is a full-time digital media person, and he spent a lot of time thinking about thinking. And we talk a lot about what he calls mental models. This conversation has a lot in common with the conversation I had with Danny Kahneman about reasoning under uncertainty, but I think you'll find it very different as well. Anyway, without further delay, I bring you Shane Parrish. I'm here with Shane Parrish. Shane, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here. So we are, uh, we're doing this in your hotel lobby, hence the, uh, the ambient city vibe. Uh, this is a non-studio sound, but it's an experiment. If people can hear us, it, it has worked. I think we probably share a significant audience, and many people will know who you are, but you, you run the, uh, the Farnham Street blog, and you have your own podcast, The Knowledge Project. Uh, we've interviewed some of the same people, so that we, we've, uh, we have many interests in common. But there was a great New York Times profile on you, which I think brought you to the attention of many people. Um, so let, let's just jump into a, a kind of potted history of your background, and, because you, you, have a, you came into this f- from a, uh, an interesting angle. You started in, was it cybersecurity specifically you were, is your background? Is it computer science and, and cybersecurity? Yeah, so I, I started work August 28th, 2001 uh, for an intelligence agency. And then September 11th happened two weeks later. And I, w- I worked in, I guess you could say cybersecurity in one way or another for, I guess, 15 years. Is that something you can talk about or are you bound by laws of Canadian espionage that you... Uh, We'll make that part of a very short conversation. We can't talk about it too much in terms of specifics. I think we can talk about general things around cybersecurity or maybe privacy issues. But yeah, it's not something I think there's a lot of stuff out there now with Snowden and everything. So I think people have a fairly good insight into what goes on inside intelligence agencies. So you were in computer science and got into cybersecurity right like two weeks before September 11th. So like you, the, the landscape completely changed. Oh, your, yeah. Your job description completely changed. Well, we didn't even have a sign on the building as of August 28th. And by Christmas that year, we actually had a sign we existed. But right. we existed since the 40s. So just to contextualize for people, I worked for the Canadian version of the NSA. Right. And it just, it was a really amazing time to be working there. I mean, it was unfortunate, the events that sort of led to our increased visibility and band-aids. But with that said, it was, we went from, I don't know, 500 people to 2,000 or so when I left. Right. A lot of growth, a lot of expectations. You know, I ended up doing a job that I wasn't really hired to do, but I loved doing. And it was a good way to sort of give back to Canada and the country that I was born in. My parents were in the military, so we lived coast to coast. I ended up working in the States for a little bit at NSA for a short time, and then most of my other time has been in Ottawa. Right. So what's the connection to Wall Street? Because you're, this could have been an artifact of what the New York Times did to you, but there, there seemed to be a real emphasis on how popular your blog and podcast are among the financial types. It's really strange. We have three main audiences for our sort of blog and podcast, which is Wall Street, Silicon Valley, and professional sports. And the way that it started was I took some time to go back to school, I think around 2008, 2009, to do an MBA. Mm. 
and quickly realized that I wasn't going to learn what I was trying to learn from my MBA. I wanted to learn how to make better decisions because I was doing operations and I was making decisions that impacted people and countries. And I felt like there was an obligation on my part to get better at making decisions. And it's not, there's no sort of like skill that is making decisions better. It's a, sub, a whole bunch of sub skills that you have to learn and apply. So I went back to school to try to get better at some of that stuff and quickly realized that the MBA wasn't going to teach me what I needed to know. And so I started a website called 68131.blogger.com, I think. Mm. And that's the zip code for Berkshire Hathaway. And the reason that I did that was the site was an homage to Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, who were actually giving me things that I could think about and put into practice about how to see the world differently, how to make better decisions. And I started just journaling for me. And the reason that we used 68131 was because I didn't think anybody would type it in at the time. It wasn't meant for anybody else's consumption. Uh -huh. It was more like a personal online notepad for my own edification and connecting ideas. And then it just, I don't know, it took off from there. It wasn't anything conscious. Like it was not, we didn't try to reach Wall Street or... So, it so was anonymous too. It wasn't even, like it didn't have my name on it because right. I was working for an intelligence agency and they wouldn't sort of let me put my name on it. You took time off of doing intelligence to get an MBA with the intention of going back to intelligence, being better equipped to make decisions, or were you getting out of intelligence at that point? I, I did full-time MBA studies and full-time work at the same time. Oh, interesting. So I, I switched jobs to take a less demanding job in the organization while I did that, and the intent was always to go back and sort of like see what options were available. I went back and went into management and... How do you view the current panic around online privacy and just what is happening to us based on our integration with the Internet? I, mean, I, I can imagine you have a few thoughts on, on what we are doing with our data, what's being done with our data, how cavalier we are with uh, these lives of transparency we're leading now. I think it's something that we need to be aware of and make conscious choices around. And I don't, I don't think there's a historical precedent where we can look back and, and sort of uh, use that as a guide because the environment's changing so quickly. I think one of the, the big things that are going to dominate over the next 10 to 20 years is online privacy and sort of the question about whether we're going to let foreign companies control parts of our infrastructure. And I think those questions are, they're not necessarily resolvable. We have individual choices about what we do. I mean, you don't want to use Google, you can use DuckDuckGo, or, but you also want these valuable services that are being provided. I think we, we need to come to some sort of understanding about what that information that we're giving away is in a transparent way. I also think that, that there's an interesting, if you think about it, do, one of the questions that I think is relevant is, do these companies get a, a cumulative advantage from having this information that prevents competition? And so is Google better at search because we use it? And the more we use it, the better they get at search, which means that it's much harder for competition to start. Right. As these algorithms get better and they're trained with more and more data, it becomes harder and harder for the person in the garage to compete. And then you, you end up having to compete with capital and not necessarily technology. And I think that changes sort of the landscape of, of what we're seeing in the market today. So I, I think maybe it's a case where history has always been the same, where big companies and incumbents tend to get bigger. But I think that it's a little bit different this time in the sense that 
these companies make a lot of money. They're not necessarily bound by employees. Mm. They have a huge influence over regulatory frameworks. The harder or more regulated they become, almost the more barriers to entry you'll get for competitors as well. Where do you come down on the question of having a foreign company build critical infrastructure? I think that's a great question, right? And I think one of the ways that you can think through that question is if we were to go back to World War II or something, to what extent would we want another country building our tanks? Yeah. To what yeah. extent do we want to be dependent tanks, on another? Tanks that could be turned off remotely. Right. So to what extent do we want to be dependent on another country? Even if we have good relations right now, I think one of the questions we ask is like, are we always going to have good relations with these countries, what could go wrong, right? And we can't, again, looking backwards, it's hard to find historical precedents where we can clearly say what could happen. But I think that the variability in outcomes is high and we're focused maybe on short-term optimization over long-term survival. This is one of these places where it feels like the market fails us because it's just in the abstract you can understand why you would want a, a free market for more or less everything but it's just so easy to see what could go wrong here if you have china or some quasi hostile foreign power or at least a foreign power that is probably best viewed as a competitor and it's very easy to see how we, we could be really in an open state of war at some point in the future there's no way, other way to look at it. You get, you, if they were going to put something malicious into the system, you know, they would have the power to turn the lights out. And it doesn't have to be war in a physical sense. It could be trade war, economic war. I mean, there's lots of different sort of... Yeah, stealing IP, which we know they do with abandons, right? And so one of the ways that we think to address this, and I'm speaking of we as people, not we as my intelligence background, is, okay, well, we'll, we'll set up a lab and we'll review your source code and then we'll we'll verify that it compiles and the checksums and then we'll deploy it into our infrastructure as a means to sort of reduce the risk. And I think that, that there's problems inherent with that, one of which is logic errors and computer code are extremely hard to pick up on. But the, the, more one, the, the one that stands out a little bit more to me would be, what if there was a zero day found and a zero day for people who don't know is a vulnerability that's not patched uh, right. that becomes available, that's found in, in the code of this infrastructure. So so the, the phrase zero day means you have zero days to fix this. It's already... Right. There's nothing you can really do to, other than unplug your, your system to prevent it. And so they, they issue a patch. And does that patch go through this long process of code review or does it get deployed right away? And mm -hmm. you, you can quickly see circumstances where you would be forced into deploying something, even under this regime of labs and stuff, where y you would end up with stuff that you would review it later. And at that mm -hmm. point, it might be too late. Uh, and that's not to say that, you know, any nation would do that. It's do you want to be put in a position where you have to think about that? Right. So back to finance. So, you, so it sounds like you were inspired by, by Berkshire Hathaway by by Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Do you do you have a connection to those guys? Have you met those guys or is it just you're just a, a no, fan based on reading their stuff? Just a just a fan. I mm -hmm. mean they're people who've influenced my thinking a lot. And the website Farnham Street is named after the street in Omaha where they have their headquarters and Buffett has his house. 
And I think it's just interesting to me when I was doing my MBA and I was sort of thinking about this, it's you sort of learn the, you, you had Daniel Kahneman on recently. Yeah. He, he, so you learn these cognitive biases that are great at explaining why we make mistakes. And you have sort of Michael Porter and his five forces theory of business competition. And I found it really interesting that these two guys in Omaha, Nebraska, or I guess one's in Pasadena, Charlie Munger is in Pasadena, California. But these two guys took that work and they made it practical and useful and used it to make better decisions in the real world over a wide variety of companies and businesses. And I thought it was really interesting. And that, that's how I really got interested in them and their yeah. thinking. Well, I, it was interesting. That, that, that conversation with Danny... At one point, so, Dan, so for those who aren't aware, Daniel Kahneman is one of the fathers of what has what has become behavioral economics, but is like a decision theory, prospect theory was part of that. It, the work he did with Amos Tversky, for which Danny uh, won the Nobel Prize in economics, revealed how bad we are at reasoning through various decisions. We have we have heuristics where we make certain decisions under uncertainty, and many of these heuristics are bad ones. They're not always bad, but they're often bad. And one thing that surprised me in my conversation with Danny is I, I mean, he's the godfather of this way of debugging human reason. And yet when asked how much he's internalized this, how much better he is at not falling prey to bad intuitions or making bad decisions or decisions that will, that will in hindsight, prove to be bad, he claimed more or less to be as bad at this as anyone else, or they, like that, like so, all of his so knowledge hasn't really paid dividends in his practical reasoning. But I get the sense you're not quite in that same boat. How, how do you how do you view yourself as a decision maker based on everything you've thought about and studied? I think it's really interesting that he said that, and I was going to bring that up. Mm. That he basically said, "I've studied this my whole life, and I feel like I'm no better at avoiding these things." And I think what that means is cognitive biases are really great retrospectively at explaining how we go astray. And they're not so great before in terms of avoiding maybe the pitfalls of those things. And the, the way that we typically sort of, or the way that I, I deal with people and how they try to address it is they create a checklist of, oh, I'm going to write down overconfident. I'm going to write down, you know, sample size bias. And then the problem with that is the more intelligent you are, the better the story you're going to tell yourself about why that doesn't apply in this particular situation. Right. It's almost like you've made your decision and then you're rationalizing it, but you're going through this checklist so you're going to create overconfidence in terms of your decision and the range of outcomes. This is a point that Jonathan Haidt and Michael Shermer and other connoisseurs of faulty reasoning have made. That I mean, Haidt puts it this way, that we reason rather often more like lawyers than like people who are actually trying to get at the truth, where we're doing some internal PR, trying to convince ourselves and others why our gut intuitions actually make sense. And that's and, and the problem is, the smarter you are, the better you are at doing that. And on some level, the better you are at fooling yourself. Yeah, it's egos over outcomes, right? right. We're, we're trying to protect our ego. And it's not a conscious thing. We're not sort of like meta thinking about protecting our ego. We're just unconsciously trying to protect our view of the world and our interpretation of the world as being correct. Hmm. And we're willing to take a less optimal outcome in part because we can excuse it away after. 
Um, like who could have seen that happen? And, you know, it becomes really interesting when you start thinking about what are the things that I can do in foresight to make better decisions? One of which we, we sort of alluded to this earlier, like there is no meta decision-making skill that you just learn. You, there's no class on decision-making. There's a subset of skills that apply in a particular situation and tools. Hmm. And those are the things that we, we want to learn, right? Just as there's no meta skill, I think it was Herbert Simon who said there's no meta skill of sort of like problem solver. What there is, is there's people who bring particular skills that are relevant and then they deploy that schema to a particular problem and they can see things and chunk things in a way that other people can't see or chunk and make better decisions based on that. And that's only relevant if the environment hasn't changed from where they've honed their expertise or they've acquired that sort of like mental models, if you will, of mm. like how the world works and the variables that interact. And I think one of the interesting things that my sort of study of Buffett and Munger has picked up on is they've deployed this and they've made a lot of sort of money in the process. But one of the things that they've done is they've stayed away from a lot of companies that are highly variable. They're more right. predictable. And I think one of the reasons they do that is that gives them a better lens. So my knowledge becomes cumulative instead of like having to reacquire it all the time. If I'm trying to understand the technology behind Google, well, that's changing every day. But if I'm trying to understand the technology behind a dry cleaner, the dry cleaner or Burlington Northern Railway, it's changing right. a lot slower. So my knowledge as I'm learning becomes additive and cumulative. And so I think in those cases, your schema, your mental schema is more likely to be correct. Right. So what do you do differently in your personal life or in your professional life as a result of all the, all the study you've done about decision making? Well, one thing that I do that I don't think a lot of people do is I rarely make a decision on the spot. I rarely feel the need to sort of like sit down and decide something to demonstrate to other people that I'm in control or that I'm a decision maker. I'll often take 20 minutes or 30 minutes and go for a walk and actually just try to think through the problem and think around it. And the way that I conceptualize this in my mind is like, you have a problem or situation and you just want to walk around it from a three-dimensional point of view. What does that problem look like to you? What does it look like through different lenses of the world? And what does it look like to other people? And how is it likely to impact them? Can you think of an example of a decision where you would... This is one thing Danny Kahneman said, is that if he's better at anything now, it's that he's more alert to the situations where more care is needed. He's more likely to make an error and perhaps can take a little more time. Where where have you applied this? In well, we were memory? talking about sort of uh, allowing companies in your foreign infrastructure. That would be an example of where you can think through the problem from different lenses, right? The immediate sort of response is, oh, it's cheaper, uh, they're, they're good, they're friendly with us. And then you start, the longer you rag on that problem, the longer you work through it, the more implications you can see as to the outset. Um, you can also think about it in terms of one of the ways that I think about this is like, how do I want to live my life? A lot of life is sort of optimized for financial maximization, but I, I don't agree with that, right? I, I think that it's actually good to have a lot of margin of safety mm. in terms of your financial position because things can change. Interest rates aren't always going to be, maybe they are, I mean, I don't know, but historically, if you, if you want to look out into the future, we could have a situation where we have 10 or 20% interest rates again. 
I don't want to go back to zero. So when I'm making decisions on finances, it's not necessarily just optimizing the short term. It's optimizing over a wide variety of outcomes. Right. And I think when you start to take time to think about decisions, you don't need, necessarily need to have more cognitive horsepower than other people to make better decisions. You just have to think through a wider variety of situations and circumstances. It's almost like you're you're doing a Monte Carlo simulation in your head where you're just thinking about what are the what are the extent of the possible outcomes? Where am I likely to end up on a probabilistic basis? And are there outcomes that are unacceptable to me, in which case I want to avoid those outcomes and invert right. the problem? And then if you can avoid all the bad outcomes, you're likely to end up with good problems or yes, good outcomes. So maybe we should just run through some of your mental models because your blog, for those who haven't seen it, is just a just an absolute arsenal of short essays on what you and others have called mental models. And these are both explicitly relevant to decision-making of, of the sorts that, that you know, Danny Kahneman has spoken about, but also just ideas and memes that you think everyone should have in their cognitive toolkit, whether they relate to biology or, or finance or probability or you know, just m many topics. So uh, I just I listed a few here that we could touch. The map is not the territory. Where, the best example of that is online dating. Uh -huh. Right. So you, you get a profile of a person that is the map and then you meet the person and they're often two completely different things. And we use maps all the time. Right. We use maps in businesses like strategic plans. We use balance sheets, income statements or maps to what's happening in the business. They're an abstraction of it, but they don't represent every nuance and detail in the business and we need maps to operate because our brains can't handle that amount of detail. So we mm. have to have a map and we can't have a map with perfect fidelity of the thing that it's representing but territories change and if the map becomes the goal in and of itself you lose track of what's actually going on in the territory. So when I say online dating is the best way to conceptually, it's the quickest way to conceptually recognize this, right? Where you have a profile, a person is presenting a view of themselves. It could be a tailored view. It's definitely a curated view. And then you go meet them and you talk with them and they're nothing like their profile or their interests don't line up with their profile. So you based your decision to meet them on a map. And then when you sort of met them, you're dealing with the territory and it's a different proposition. And I think that we just need to be aware of when we're dealing with a map. And if you're running a business or a team, you want to be touching the territory, right? You want to have a feel for what's going on. Are things changing? How is the sort of morale of the team Enron would be another example of sort of like a map territory problem before they went bankrupt. Everybody was reading the map and the map was saying... Well, well they were lying about the map. The map was lying to you. <laughs> but it is a map. That's yeah. the thing, right? So yeah. the maps can deceive you and they can lie to you. Hmm. And your job, to the extent that you're an investor, is to sort of like understand the territory and understand what's going on at a different level. Yeah, I ran into this recently with somebody was urging me to make a few business projections like a project this is a now a map of the future where you know like growth targets with respect to a business and maybe there's some context where this makes sense for people to do but it just it seems game. so obviously just made up right and and i just was thinking of what are the consequences of making this up so you you posit whatever it is you know 20% growth over some period of time and, and that is being put forward as some criterion of success. And yet you don't know, you don't in fact know what's possible, right? So 
it made no sense to me to be anchored to that number. It made no sense to imagine that we should be happy with that number or depressed not to have reached it because it's, it, it's just plucked out of thin air. If you could have 10x something, why would you be happy with 5x? And if 5xing something is in fact impossible, why would you be disappointed with 4x, right? So it's like all yeah. of this is made, is you're basically creating a psychological experiment for yourself where you're either going to feel good or bad based on this confabulation that you did you know, some months prior. Maybe there's more to it than I understand, but it just seemed, it seemed like a crazy use of intelligence. At that moment. On a one-off basis, projections are sort of, as you said, they're dangerous, right? So you, you can also start working towards the projection and not do the obvious best thing to do because you want to hit your projection. Right. And then on a recurring basis where you work for an organization or a body or entity that sort of like is consistently making projections, there's very few of those organizations go back and calibrate the individuals making those projections. I mean, we used to have people who would make projections in a very sort of rote fashion. They knew which projections would get accepted. And they also knew that there was no consequences to sort of like pulling those projections out of their ass. Right. And so if there are no consequences and you're not sort of held to account for your projections, you also have no way to calibrate the person making the projections. Is this person more accurate than another person at these projections? And then an interesting question would be, what makes them more accurate than other people? And can we use that information to make better decisions? And it's also, you're aiming at an arbitrary target, right? So if the projection is 20% growth, and that's what's going to satisfy you because you put that target on the wall, my question is, why not just do the best things you should be doing for in this case we're talking about a business do those best things and see what happens right so yeah. like like why why aim at an arbitrary target that doesn't take into account the higher level thinking of just what are the best things you should be doing for this business we don't make projections on our happiness right right yeah. it's not going to yeah. be like I'm marriage, be 15 yeah, yeah. percent more happy exactly next year. Yeah. We, we do it with finances and numbers because it tends to be a little easier but i think it it causes a lot more harm. Okay, another mental model here. First principles thinking. Yeah, I mean, Elon Musk is sort of like the the recent example of that, but it, it's breaking things down. And one of the things at the intelligence agency that we had to do a lot of was solve problems that are sort of like ungoogleable, where people haven't really solved them before or dealt with that particular problem. And you get constrained into thinking about things through your particular lens. So your discipline, if you went through computer science or engineering or arts or HR, and we were so fortunate to have a wide variety of people there. But one of the things that sort of got us out of what we had been done, the, the other constraint is what you've done before, right? So you're, you're beholden to improve upon what already exists versus, I wouldn't say reinvent the wheel, but rethink the problem. Right. And so you it's like legacy code for the mind. Right. Yeah. So you bring all this baggage with you, but if you actually stop and pause about the problem for a second and think about, well, what are the actual physical constraints of the world? What are the building blocks that I'm dealing with? What are the limitations, like the actual limitations, not what exists today? And then you can sort of rethink the problem in terms of how you want to solve it. And you at least know what's possible. It might be more expensive. It might be cost prohibitive so the organization can't do it but it, it sort of like gets you into this 
out of this incremental improvement state and more seeing right. the problem more fundamentally. And I think that's where we see a lot of disruption in the world is, you know, I think it was Peter Thiel who had the concept of zero to one. And if you think of innovation as possibly having two types of different innovation, one being incremental improvement and one being sort of like a fundamental change, I think the fundamental change is coming when we tend to think through problems from a first principle basis and take a different approach to them within the, the boundaries of what is possible, whereas the incremental improvement is we look at something and we just move the widget faster. And they're both valuable, and they're both valuable in an organization. I think it's just a lot easier to do the incremental improvement. And so yeah. if you think of optics and promotions and how sort of the internal dynamics of an organization work, it becomes a lot less risky to do the incremental improvement than think about things through a first principles basis and what's possible. Yeah, I guess that's somewhat in tension with another mental model you have here, or at least it's possibly so, in doing no harm. It's often the, well, first, let's explore what that, what that means. What do, you, what do you mean by doing no harm? On your blog, you call this the, the via negativa. Yeah, so the harm we're, avoidance. We're, we're sort of like prone to demonstrate value in an organization. Right? We're, we're prone to having this bias towards action, this bias towards doing something and being seen as doing something. And often when we do that, we have a knee-jerk reaction. We solve the most visible problem that exists. We, we don't necessarily solve the fundamental problem. Mm -hmm. And a great example of this is sort of if you think about software and you have a problem with a software, hypothetically you're using an HR software at work, you have a problem with that software and that problem is, you know, people can't take vacation leave through that software. They have to manage and track it through an Excel spreadsheet. And so you're put in charge of solving this problem. And while well, you go out in the world and you look for software that can solve this particular problem where you can track vacation and you implement this new software, but you don't realize that the software has created other problems. You don't realize that like you've just changed one problem for another and the problems that you're getting now could be a lot worse than the ones that you're dealing with. The tension I saw there is that there's the via negativa model would counsel a kind of conservatism, right? Which or an incrementalism where it's like you rather than tear up the the whole approach by the roots and reinvent it, you you do just want to shave off inefficiencies or find other ways of, of optimizing what has worked in the past rather than completely rethink it. You mentioned Elon. You know, yesterday he successfully launched his Falcon Heavy rocket and landed all the booster stages, right? So that this fundamental change of you know, thinking of, of rocket launches as something that should be totally reusable and you've got to figure out how to land these things, land the first stage, it's a, you know, on its face, sounds like a crazy idea, but once you set that goal based on rethinking the first principles of the whole enterprise, now we discover there's a solution. But that requires such a vast use of resources to rethink something so fundamental in an area that's so expensive already. I mean, obviously, this is a, the goal here is to cut the costs and to make it a, a bigger industry, but it's easy to see that you could have gone down that path. And for a very long time for Elon, it looked like he was going down this path to a waiting cliff, right? There was no guarantee of success. What an amazing time to be alive. Yeah, just, it's, I just it's really nuts. say that, right? Like yeah. watching 
rockets launch and sort of like reland and then redeploy yeah. uh, is well that, that footage is so there are a few things which every time you see them you don't really habituate to how weird and futuristic they seem i mean and this this is footage that i'm sure at some point will become jaded enough to say well that's of course that's the way that's supposed to work but watching those boosters land perfectly in unison it just looks like a, a science fiction movie from the 80s that yeah. you know was just preposterous and then when you when you think you, you sort of alluded to why that happened right when he's being interviewed i remember him talking about it in the sense of i just thought about what was possible and i thought it was possible it was physically possible to reuse rockets and right. so he thought about the problem in a different way. And he has a very great ability to attract not only capital, but people to working on those problems. And the result can be amazing. But it's also important to note that not all of those results are amazing. I mean, we see this sort of like SpaceX's of the world. And we, we probably don't see the hundreds or thousands of companies that rethink the problem as well and fail. But I mean, that's how we make incremental progress as a, right. as a but that society. Is, so, but that is, I guess that's probably another mental model you have written about. There's a, a survivorship bias that we're, we're constantly being advertised the evidence of only those success stories. And we're not given any true indication of the the ocean of failures that is behind many of those. Maybe we should talk about that. I mean, I guess this also connects to another model, which is just understanding base rates. I mean, just how, how many new businesses succeed, for instance, or how it's like this is not something that you necessarily understand when you calculate the probability that any new venture is, is going to work out for you. I mean, our view is based on ego, right? So we, we think, you know, the restaurant we're opening or the podcast we're launching or the app we're doing or sort of the, the new business that we're we're sort of endeavoring to undertake is going to be successful because we're involved in it. Right. But everybody has that view and, and the success rates are, you know, abysmal, especially after a five-year period. Same as marriage, right? If you ask people whether their marriage is going to be successful, if they're sort of like on day one and embarking on that, they're of course going to say like, we're not going to fall victim to this 50% of marriages dissolve sort of base rate, but you don't have that. You need to factor in that outside view in terms of, making decisions and you don't need to do it all the time. Maybe, maybe it's best not to do it in matters of love. Right. And maybe it's best to make a more emotional decision there. I think. Well, in that having a positive bias or an optimism bias could actually be a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree in, in right. many endeavors. I mean, it's just, it's just that the positive attitude has to count for something in various contexts. I agree. I think I think this desire to be purely rational all of the time in every decision that we make might actually be a disservice because it would sort of take people like Elon and why would I try to reuse a rocket? It's never been done before. Right. And it would sort of dissuade us from doing that. We need some sort of emotional component to our decision making. It's just a matter of determining when it's serving us. And when it's hurting us. And I think that that would be the more accurate view of how you think about that. So thought experiments. How do you uh, think about thought experiments? Thought, the, the, the phrase now for me is fairly charged because I am uh, the victim of having used thought experiments in on controversial topics that did not get received as th like they were thought experiments. So it's, oh, which it, ones? It, this is something that I got 
being a, a student of philosophy, where it, just to, to look for any kind of ground truth, especially morally, you want to think of the corner cases. You want to think of conditions where you've simplified a real-world scenario so that you can discover whether or not you actually have an argument against or for the thing you think should be clear-cut. So probably the clearest case for me is thinking about the ethics of torture. There's a fascinating and consequential argument to be had about whether torture is ever ethical. And it's by no means straightforward when you can, when you line it up against the other things we accept without blinking our eyes, which on paper seem worse than torture as you li- line them up. And the, the, the example I used was collateral damage. But in order to have that conversation, you, you, you talk about, you know, ticking bomb scenarios, right, which are not, which in the real world don't happen very often. Uh, and in you know, the purest cases, they don't happen at all. But the issue is, if, if you actually want to get down to bedrock, if you want to understand whether you can make an ethical argument against the use of torture in all cases, you need the clearest case. You need to say, okay, let, let's take out all the variables. Let's take out the uncertainty, for instance, of a person's guilt, right? So we know the person we have is guilty, right? We know that... With 100% you know, we, certainty. Yeah, we caught him with his heart. He even claims to be guilty, right? And we caught him with his computer, and we can see, you know, the kinds of nefarious things he's been planning and... and you know, we see the plans for the nuclear device that he claims is hidden in the middle of a city, right? And he won't give us the information. So you, you need the purified case, not because that's the likely case, but let's just figure out if we actually have a an argument against the use of torture in all cases, because that would be immensely clarifying. Because if we, if we solve that, mm. then we know, okay, we're never tempted to make an exception to this rule, right? Because we've, t- we've thought it through in the clearest case where we know the person is guilty. We know they've got a nuclear bomb in the middle of a city. We know we, we, we have a shortage of time. There's no other methods we can use to get the intelligence. You, you distill it down to the, the case where even good people would be the most tempted to, mm. resort, to resort to torture, then see if you have an argument against it. But what, you, what happens when you have conversations like that is that then people, rather than receive them in the spirit of ethical inquiry for the purpose of charting a course in the future politically, they put a journalistic or political lens on it from the start, right? And, and so, I mean, even in a clearer case, I mean, this is a case I, I haven't actually used, but this is the kind of thing that one would routinely do in a philosophy seminar. You say, well, okay, well, why can't we eat babies, right? So, like, you know, babies, there are unwanted children in the world. They're full of protein. What's wrong with eating babies? Now, it's not that the person who's raising that example has an interest in eating babies. It's just, this is like a laser focus on moral bedrock, right? To go that far to the edge case. And it's instructive that some, you know, some people will find it difficult to even argue that case, right? I mean, some people will feel like they need to resort to a a holy book revealed by an invisible God in order to get you some bedrock where you can stand so as to not eat babies. And so it, it is a, an engine of interesting and morally rich conversation. Now, obviously, not all thought experiments deal with ethically fraught territory, but I do find that the concept of a thought experiment has been stigmatized because it is synonymous with, or thought to be synonymous with, not making contact with the real world. 
you're basically creating the straw man case that you're then going to use to guide you in the future with predictably bad results. A couple of comments just as you were talking there. One of the things that I found myself thinking as you were talking is how do we find out about what we think on an issue? How do we find out where we land on a particular issue? And so we're expected to have these fully formed opinions. We're expected to have these fully thought out. And we have really, I would argue, it's it's sort of increasingly difficult to have conversations about these things. And that in itself is a problem. Like, can you imagine sort of like the outrage that would ensue about, you know, having this debate on Twitter or just trying to figure out where you land so you you put this out there and then the feedback would be like the media would be all over you. People would be jumping on you. I don't have to imagine <laughs> it. This is my life on Twitter. But you know, this, this is this it. Is, right? This is why I'm tempted to delete my Twitter account on a monthly basis. Aren't, aren't we better off having this safe space, like almost like a sandbox where we can play with ideas, where we can explore things, where they don't have to infect us. We don't have to believe it. For me, the, this podcast has become that sandbox. I mean, I, I have taken great pains to insulate it against the normal commercial pressures. As you know, maybe we'll talk about that at some point. But another example occurs to me that a guest brought up, who I be- believe you've also had on your podcast, Will McCaskill, the, the yeah. ethicist, who's, who's just fantastic. And he was talking about the ethics of you know, running into a burning building to save a child uh, you could do that, or but if you if you run to that burning building and on your way to the child's bedroom, you discover that there's a Picasso on the wall, and uh, you could also save that and you know liquidate that, and we use the you know the seventy five million dollars or whatever you get from that sale to save many more children than one, right? And if so, if, if there were really a zero sum contest between the money or the child, at minimum, that's an interesting ethical apparent ethical dilemma to sort through right now it's it seems we have a very strong intuition that you would be a psychopath to grab a painting rather than a child from a burning house but of course the the choice is never really presented to us in that form but there are many analogous choices that right. like when you look at just the decision to for a news organization to spend 24 hours covering a story about a single suffering person as opposed to a genocide that is raging in some distant country. It's just a, the, the way we marshal our resources, you know, the single compelling case that causes the the massive judgment as opposed to the, the statistics of vast human suffering that doesn't move the needle at all. This is how we can discover and correct for moral bugs that are that are actually of great consequence. We need a mechanism to sort of have these conversations and I think it's going away. And as of right now, I mean, the only safe, guaranteed safe space you ever have is just inside your own brain. Right. But in the future, we might even see that go away as technology increasingly sort of like permeates us and maybe our skin. And then what happens is like the minority report might become real, right? Where you, you think of somebody cuts you off and you're like, I want to kill them. And all of a sudden you're arrested because you had this thought and I think like we're at the very, 
we're in a very interesting time for thinking where that sandbox doesn't exist. Like you, you can't go out being Sam Harris and say something. I, I mean, you can because you're you, but I mean, a lot of people with right. such a public profile can't come out with a controversial idea because the backlash on them is going to be so huge. And I, I think as a society, we need a way to sort of maybe preface, maybe there needs to be a standard way to preface comments with like, I'm thinking out loud here and I want to, I want to gauge your reaction. I want to get different opinions on this because I'm trying to walk through it. Maybe I have sort of an inclination about what it looks like, but I do want to sort of like get some feedback so I can hone my own thinking and see the things that I'm missing. And I don't think we have a mechanism to do that. When I call it sandboxing, that's sort of what I mean, right? You, you want to have this ability to not only put your thoughts out there in a safe space, but you also want to be able to walk in this safe space and explore other people's thinking and not necessarily have it infect you as a person. One of my favorite thought experiments is when I see something like that that just strikes me as like so obviously not something that I would do is to ask myself what the world would have to look like for me to have done that what would the right. like what would my view of the world have to look like for me to grab that painting instead of save a baby is there a conceivable circumstance where that applies and often i mean you come up with some pretty plausible things but yeah that that particular one that will floated i can never map on to my morality successfully just i think what's creeping in there is i mean there's just other variables like you know is the painting insured of course, yeah, yeah, right? Are you going to be... Uh, is know? it 100% chance you're going to save the baby? Or exactly. is it 20% chance? Is right. it 10? Does that matter? Are you a parent, a relative? Do you like, you know, yeah. there's a billion questions that you can sort of... And you have to make a split-second decision. And these decisions are necessarily imperfect. And your, your intuition is going to be based on sort of our evolutionary programming. But we know there are clearer cases where the decision is not under time pressure there's no uncertainty in it and we still rather effortlessly make the decision to privilege the well-being of of the one over the many in a way that we never feel obliged to justify so i mean for instance if you if you're someone who has you know $5000 of discretionary money to spend this year and you know every day you live you're living with the choice of not to spend it on some obvious philanthropic good, right? And you're going to spend it on something else that is harder to justify in light. I mean, this is this this is a you know Peter Singer argument. It's like the the shallow pond argument. I mean, to some degree, we're all in the situation of choosing not to get our fancy shoes wet because we don't want to wade in and and ruin them while saving the life of a, a child that's drowning in a shallow pond. Every legitimate appeal for help that we decline. We're always, by default, declining to save lives every day. Again, there's no time pressure. Perhaps there's the illusion of uncertainty, but there really is not much uncertainty. I mean, we know we know that there are life-saving programs that are underfunded, and if, to put your $5,000 into the system would save a life, right? And yet... Yeah, we don't do it. That's very likely not the next $5,000 you're going to spend, right? My my response to that, I and mean, this is actually this was the one, the one podcast interview I did that actually had immediate concrete outcome was after my Will McCaskill podcast, I decided to automate a donation to the uh, Against Malaria Foundation every month, 
And so I don't even have to think about it. I mean, I just know every month that, you know, the... How, how did you determine the amount that you did that with? The amount... So Will, at the time, and I believe this has changed, I should actually change the amount if I want to be totally coherent. But at the time, the Against Malaria Foundation calculated that it costs $3,500 to save a life. You know, the, like the most efficient way of saving a life at that point was bed nets and just statistically... $3,500 worth of bed nets would save, on average, one life. So the, so the first $3,500 that comes into the podcast every month goes to the Against Malaria Foundation. But the crucial thing for me is I know my intuitions here are bad. I know that malaria is not the sexiest cause that, you know, that grabs my heartstrings. I know that if I made this vulnerable to my enthusiasm, if I had to, like, a quarter, on a quarterly basis or on a yearly basis, I had to rethink my commitment to saving kids from malaria, I know that there'd be significant churn. I would churn out, you know. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Why malaria and saving a life over dramatically improving the trajectory or outcome of a life? And so an example would be, you've chosen to do that, you have daughters, right? Yep. I was reading something a couple of months ago about how teenagers who are adopted, who are sort of like can't find a home, if they don't find a place to go, they become a net drag on society over their life. The expectation, not on an individual basis, but the generalization is that they become sort of welfare recipients. They don't contribute positively to society. They're more likely to go to jail. They're more likely all of these negative outcomes. And then conversely, if they are adopted into a stable family or stable home, then that changes to they become contributing members of society. They're not a drag. And that, that outcome swing is like millions of dollars and the quality right. of life is huge. So I, I don't know the answer to this question, which is why I'm sort of like thinking about it as we talk about it, thinking out loud, if you will, yeah. about why saving a life without regard to the quality of that life versus choosing to improve the quality of a life to contribute to society in a different way. I should go back and look at what givewell.org does here, because I think they, they bring some of that into their consideration. So it's, it's the, the GiveWell Foundation, which is part of the effective altruism movement. And this, this is the, the website that Will at the time recommended I look at for, yeah. for the they rank order the most, what they consider the most effective charities. And you can see on their website what, what they use to make that determination. It's not purely body count. I mean, so, some of the charities are not even, it's not, it's not always a matter of saving a life. So well-being certainly has something to do with it. But I mean, here, here with malaria, you're talking about a disease that disproportionately kills young children and expectant mothers for some reason being pregnant and the whole medical emergency around maternity leaves people especially vulnerable to, to malaria. So it's just, you know, for me, it's pretty easy to see that, you know, having your five-year-old die needlessly because of something a mosquito did, it's, it's pretty easy to see what a life-deranging subtraction from your well-being that is, you know, just like death aside, you know, forget about the, the life of the child. It's just so bad for these societies where this is a common problem. Actually, we've made a lot of headway, too. I think it used to be that something close to it was like two and a half million or 
maybe even three million people a year died from malaria, and again, mostly kids and mostly mothers. And I think that's down. It's under a million. I think it's down to like six hundred thousand or something. And that's now. all so through nets now, isn't it? Most it's mostly nets. I mean, you know, ultimately, I think we're going to eradicate the mosquito. Which that that would be my first. We should take fifteen minutes to think about the do no harm principle here. But as far as a species that we don't need, I think the mosquito is got to be at the top of everybody's <laughs> list. I don't know what eats them apart from bats, but you know, I think bats probably have something else to eat. That's a possible use of CRISPR that people are now working on. Well, that's another sort of the CRISPR thing is really interesting because you can think about that at an individual country level and you can think about it as a multi-country world problem or not problem world issue where what, what happens if one country defects? So if every country agrees to sort of like not do this and then one country defects and they, they create, you know, a reservoir of, of pandemic. Yeah. Or super talented people or you, you, you know, immune people to disease or, you know, it's a really interesting sort of implication where the signaling value of saying that you're part of a program is obviously evident, but then the the value of defecting becomes possibly disproportionately large and huge. But in this case, the value of keeping your mosquito population? No, I just meant CRISPR in general. It's right. sort of like oh, just a in, DNA in, in the editing use of it, on yeah. people. Yeah, the ethical use of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that has got to already be a problem that we don't totally understand the shape of. But you, you got to think China very likely is, is, is using it in ways that wouldn't pass our IRBs. I'm hesitant, just going back to the mosquitoes, even to think about I don't know if we know enough about the long-term sort of implications of that. And I think we would be solving an immediate short-term visible problem. And my worry would be that we're creating a non-visible long-term problem. Yeah. And we would wake up one day going like, what just happened here? Yeah. Well, you can, you can easily see, I mean, if, if mosquitoes play some crucial role in the ecosystem that we don't understand, I mean, if they, if they were actually pollinating all of our food and we didn't realize it, that would be a dystopian unraveling of our lives. But I think we probably know enough about the biology of mosquitoes and their incessant harm. I mean, it's, it's not just malaria. It's, it's, there's so many mosquito-borne illnesses that kill people or yeah. you know, ruin the quality of what their lives. What was the other one, the Zika or something? Zika virus yeah. and dengue. And I mean, it's just mosquitoes are the most dangerous species on Earth as far as being a vector for disease. And th- I mean, this is one place where... I'm very tempted to see the status quo bias as a as a bias to get past. I mean, because obviously species go extinct all the time, and it's a bad thing. There are many species we're wiping out unintentionally, but had we wiped out the mosquito unintentionally, I think it's very likely we would just be witnessing a massive improvement in our world, and it would be... Uh, we might see that in our lifetimes. So. Yeah. We're certainly going to see the choice... I think, in fairly short order, whether or not to run this experiment. People are doing it in labs. I mean, they're, they're breeding infertile mosquitoes. and, and I'm fairly hesitant to mess with something that's existed for yeah, millions yeah. of 200 years. million years. Right? Yeah. Like, I, I think that it's in large part, and we might be right or wrong, but I think it's a lot of hubris on our part to think that... Yes, it is where uh, various sci-fi novels and movies start and end. Okay, back to to a few more mental models here. 
Can I just interject for one yeah, second, just to it. give people context on the minimal models? Yeah. So the idea is just to to give people the education they would have gotten had they gone through like the one hundred and one class in university or college for a variety of subjects. I mean, we go to university or college, we specialize, and and this is how I I came upon this, which is like. I did high school and you sort of get a broad education, but I went into computer science and it very quickly became all computer science, right. very little arts, uh, very little sort of philosophy and humanity and English. And it became math and engineering and computer programming. And you end up in the world. And part of that, I think, is a good trade-off for companies, right? Companies get to acquire a person who can contribute relatively quickly but you fast forward three, four, five years at that company, and now you're in a different job, and that job might or might not sort of be akin to the the skill set that you're bringing or that you were taught in school. And the problem is we 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 only see the world through these lenses, or we're more mm. prone to see them through these lenses. So we every problem looks like I mean, there's a the old proverb to you know every problem looks like a nail, and you have a hammer, and you just hammer it down. And I think that one of the things that I found valuable because I found people and myself included looking at problems just through these very, very narrow lenses is to just open up the broader world. But not only does it help you sort of understand and see interconnections, but it also helps you really, and I, I didn't think of this at the time, and it only became apparent after, but it helps you really understand other people. And it helps you understand the models that they have in their head. It helps you communicate right. with them. It helps you sort of relate to them and develop relationships with them that are meaningful in part because you sort of can shape what you're talking about to how they see the world. Yeah, actually, there's a model here which is relevant for that point you just made about understanding people. Hanlon's razor. What is Hanlon's razor? Never attribute to malice what can be attributed to something else. Yeah. And yeah. we have this default, right? Like when somebody cuts us off on the road, we think that they're an asshole and they're, they're cutting us off because they're doing it to us. But we don't think about the fact that, you know, maybe they have a screaming child in the car and they're trying to get to the hospital. The initial response to us is always like, who are they? What are they doing to us? It, it sort of hits us at an evolutionary programming level, which is hierarchy. Right. Right. Who is this person? What are they doing to us? They're just an idiot. They're trying to hurt me. or And that's where our mind tends to default to often, especially if we're stressed or we're rushed or we're prone to like we forgot something and we have all these things going on in our head. And so we just go back to our primal sort of instincts on that. Yeah, it's also the bottom of a lot of conspiracy thinking where pe people attribute to nefarious scheming something that is readily explained by just incompetence or oversight or randomness or bad yeah. luck. For the one for me that never gets old is, you know, 9-11 truth conspiracy thinking. But in order for the, the general shape of that conspiracy to be true, you're positing hundreds, probably thousands of people who were happy to facilitate the murder of 3,000 strangers uh, you know, one bright morning, and still have clear enough consciences that you know, nothing has ever leaked out. No one, has, no one has gone on sixty minutes saying, you know, I feel horrible, and you know, I should be, I should be punished for what I did on that day. It's attributing motives to people that they almost certainly couldn't have, and certainly there's no reason to suspect that they would have. And people don't acknowledge what a cognitive 
burden that should be to make that attribution. The odds of it being incompetence are way higher yeah. than malice. And But there's enough malicious people in the world that we hold on to that sort of... But not enough that can spontaneously organize in that way, oh, totally, in those yeah. numbers, li living such seemingly normal lives up until that moment. This is related to Occam's razor, which is another model here, which many people know about, but it, which is at the, the foundation of scientific thinking. But it, it really is just the, it's the principle of, of parsimony in science. You're not multiplying ideas about how things work unnecessarily so that you, know, you, want, you want to privilege the, the simplest explanation that still conserves all the data. But the devil is often in the details around what strikes you as simple. Right, so to take a case from the philosophy of mind and attributions of, of consciousness to systems or to creatures, you know, you know you're conscious, right? That's where we all start. And it's imagined that there's philosophical work to be done to attribute consciousness to anything else. And so, that, so like Occam's razor or, or part of the principle of parsimony would cause you to be skeptical about whether anyone else is conscious. Maybe the, everyone's just a zombie and it's just you. You're in this solipsistic world where you're the only one having experience. You can only be sure of the reality of consciousness in your case. But when you think of all the extra work you would have to do in order to render it plausible that everyone else is a zombie, I mean, everyone else has evolved the way you did, they have the same biological substrate, you know, you know that if you could scan their brains, they would show very similar levels of activity that your own brain shows in the same paradigm. You'd have to explain all of, all of that for whatever reason wouldn't be sufficient for consciousness in their case, but it is in yours. That's not actually parsimonious. You're actually, you're actually doing extra work to assume that you're the only one who's conscious in that case. And it's, it's true for even other species. I mean, to assume that only humans are conscious and that, you know, chimpanzees aren't, Again, that seems parsimonious because you're not making an you're not making this what could seem like a gratuitous attribution of subjectivity to other species when you can't confirm that it's there. But what you're smuggling in is this extra work that you're not doing, which is making a principled case for why, though they are ninety nine percent identical to us genetically and have exactly the same neuroanatomical structures, and they seem on the outside to be, you know, having an experience and ha even having an emotional life and reacting to their environment in ways that we find, you know, resonant with our own subjectivity. By dint of some principle we don't understand, that is completely insufficient for consciousness in their case. You're, you're making that positive claim, but you're not aware that you're making it and, and you're calling it parsimony, you're calling it Occam's razor. So there's some work to be done to figure out where simplicity actually is in the use of that mental model. I hadn't really thought about it in, in that sort of context before. That's really interesting. Okay, a couple more models here because you have a thousand of them and we've covered maybe five. Compounding. How do you think of compounding? Well, compound interest is, I don't know, it was attributed to Einstein, although I've sort of like done some digging around this. That yeah, everything's been attributed to Einstein I know, and it's almost never it's like, true. <laughs> it was the most powerful force in the world. And if you think about, I, I mean, in a way, evolution is compounding. Uh, yeah. We tend to think about compounding only applying to finances, but compounding can apply to learning. If you're learning, yeah. like we talked about earlier in terms of Buffett and sort of like investing in businesses that change slowly to allow knowledge to compound. We can compound our knowledge. We can compound our reputation. And, you know, we can also multiply it by zero, which is uh, we can 
get rid of it in a heartbeat by doing something incredibly stupid. And I think like compounding, what do we want? We want a long runway. We want a lot of time. We want incremental progress on consistency. And mm. we just want to slowly sort of like almost everybody who's probably listening to this podcast has the ability to sort of save money. And if you start saving a little bit of money, we, we understand this from a bank account perspective. Well, that money starts earning money for you. And then, you know, it starts really slowly, but eventually it gets to a quite significant amount of money. And I think that we can think of compounding and it doesn't necessarily have to apply just to finances. Right. Uh, we do want to compound our reputation. We want to compound our learning. We want to be a better person today than we were yesterday. And if we think about going to bed smarter than when we woke up and we're conscious of that, we want to learn something every day, I think that it can have a meaningful impact on your life. And, and so often with these ideas, we take them from one discipline and compounding comes from basically finance, but I mean, it could come from biology. And we just try to apply that lens onto other aspects of our life and see where it makes sense and where it doesn't make sense. And it doesn't always make sense. But if you think about your life as... I'm going to live a long time. What are the things that I can do today to better prepare me to live this long life? Mm. You stop optimizing for the short term and you start optimizing for the long term. So you're more willing to sacrifice today. You're more willing to do something that's a first order negative for a second order positive. So you're more willing to save money because you know you're going to retire and you're going to need money. Mm. You're more willing to learn something today and invest the time to learn it because you know you're intelligently preparing for a likely possible future. Yeah, and that's one of those cases where we know this is something we're bad at. We know that we discount our future well-being fairly steeply, and it's just it's hard to actually take seriously the fact that you are going to inherit the consequences of the decisions you made today, 20 years from now, for someone who's smoking cigarettes, say. It was like that's it's such a clear case where there's a thing you want to do now, it's tempting to do now, you're very likely addicted to it on some level and it's hard to resist and yet the overwhelming likelihood is that you are going to suffer some obscenely negative outcome 20 years hence so much of what we do doesn't compound right if you think of the permutations of relationships that we have with people there's really only four right there's win-win win-lose lose-lose lose-win but only one of those, which is win-win, will sustain mm. itself over time. Because if you're on the losing end or you're treating somebody on the losing end, they want out of that transaction. So that relationship can't compound. And right. most of the advantages to compounding come at the end, not at the start. And so if you, you think about your understanding of compounding and apply it to your relationships in your life, you start to see, well, I only want win-win relationships with people. I, yeah. I don't want to take the last dime off the table because they might feel like that they're they're losing. And if they feel like they're losing, they're going to want to reciprocate because we're, we're prone to sort of this tit for tat behavior. And I know that I'm, I want to be dealing with this person for the next 50 years. And so what I'm doing today is really setting the tone for like the, the 10th through 40th years where the advantages to that compounding become trust. So now there's less transactional costs when we do something. We don't need lawyers because I've worked with you for 10 years. Right. And now we can do things faster. And so there's a speed advantage to that. And we have this web of deserved trust, and now it starts to compound really rapidly. And we can do things that wouldn't be possible if we didn't sort of invest in that relationship. So often what we do is we uh, slightly take advantage of somebody today, and we rationalize in our, to ourselves that we'll make it up tomorrow. 
But I think what we learn from the world is it doesn't really work that way. Right. Um, we, we might have the best intentions about making it up, but then we get busy and we forget. But that person doesn't forget, and they become sort of spring-loaded for seeing things through a different lens now. So even if on the next transaction, the next interaction, you're going at it from a win-win, they're more prone to see that as a win-lose where they're losing. Yeah. And so you've set this tone. And then the flip side of that is like, you also, you need to win to be sustainable, right? And that's why finding win-wins with people is so important. And that's why not dealing with assholes is so important because the frictional costs of all of that, and I mean, this is an interesting sort of thing with sponsors where, you know, you don't do sponsors on your podcast. We're going away from them in part because the pushback and the friction that we're getting there and the, the lack of trust. So, yeah, so let, let's talk a little. We're both in the digital media business, for lack of a better word, to some degree. And what are you trying to build and how have you approached it? Well, I think around 2015, I decided that this was going to be a means to make a livelihood. And I needed to capture some of the value that we were creating. And there, there's two things, right? There's the value create and the value capture. And up until that point, we weren't capturing sort of anything. And so, I also so you had a, you had a blog and a podcast at that point, or I think we started the podcast in 2015. But to put things in perspective, it's 2019 now, and we've done 54 episodes. Right, right. Okay. So we don't do a lot of episodes. Yeah. We're more frequent now than we used to be, and it's been about sort of exploring that medium and exploring what it takes to create a business in that space. And it's hard because people can copy almost everything that you do. Sponsors tend to be. I don't know. We've been fortunate. Mostly we're dealing with good sponsors. But one of the reasons we're switching the podcast away is I've had two large sponsorship deals fall through in the past six months over clauses to insert uh, the CEO in the podcast guest list. Right. And it's yeah. like, well, then I lose my integrity. And the minute I lose my integrity, I lose my audience. And if I lose my audience, that's the people you want to market to. So none of this makes sense. Right. And I don't want to deal with people where I have to worry about that. Did you get approached by sponsors or possible sponsors after the New York Times profile? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, we, we had a lot. The, the New York Times article in and of itself on the day it came out didn't do a ton for us. But when they changed the headline and called me a spy, it... I don't think I saw that headline. So, so yeah. The, they, they, yeah, they changed the headline. They called me a spy and then it made the homepage, and we stayed on the homepage of NewYorkTimes.com for like two days. Right. And we were one of the top viewed stories and most emailed stories. And then that did a lot for us in terms of book offers and sort of like we became more legitimized as a platform. Right. But the, the, the part and, of, and when you say we, is there is there a team uh, behind so, you? Or? Yeah, Farm Street. I mean, this is an interesting sort of difference between us. Like you're SamHarris.org, we're yep. Farm Street. And one of the reasons that... I wanted to not name it after myself is I just want this to exist in the world long after I'm gone. Like I think this search for timeless knowledge, this search for upgrading yourself in a non-self-helpy sort of way, mm. this search for creating meaning in relationships and life and making better decisions and how do I become a better person, I think that that exists in perpetuity with humanity. And so I wanted to, I mean, as ambitious as maybe hubris as that sounds, I wanted to create something that outlives me. Right. And so we have four people. I'm just trying not to die. So uh, yeah, well, naming everything after me. I would love not to yeah. die. Uh, but we have four people involved. But, you know, two of those people are full time on this sort of like series of books that we're creating. 
about covering these core disciplines. Uh -huh. And we're, we're doing that for, you know, we're not necessarily doing that as part of the business. We're doing that to sort of give back to the world. Right. And how do we create the products that we would want to exist with no sort of financial incentive because we're, we're probably going to lose money off those. We just published the first book this week and there's five volumes coming and they're super oh, cool. time consuming. They take a lot of time and effort and we're going to make them free. So well, anybody that's buying like the Audible or Kindle edition, we're trying to be totally transparent about the fact that we self-publish. One of the reasons we self-published is that this book will be available. All of these books will be, all the content will be available for free. So, so you'll, you mean there'll be a, a free PDF version or, or we're going to put them, uh, when we're done all five volumes at some point, I don't know it like the exact timing, we're going to create a website, put all of the content from the books on the website and then transpose sort of one of the things that we're doing in the books is we're talking about the models as standalone, but the models don't exist as standalone. The models are interconnected. The world is interconnected. If it's not multidisciplinary, like, I don't know what it is, but right. you can't teach it in a multidisciplinary way. You have to sort of like build up this foundation and then connect it. And so the website will be aimed at connecting it and making it free for everybody to like, I have this type of problem. I want to think like this. How is this model connected to another model? And that's sort of the ambition with that project. But that that's not sort of like part of our core business about what we're trying to do, which is the podcast and the website and the events that we run. Yeah, so, so what is the business? We haven't mentioned this yet. You have events and you also... Do you have an online community that's behind a paywall? Is that, yes, yeah. we have a learning community, which is uh, people support us and they get access to a whole bunch of extra content similar to what you do with your sort of paying members. I think that that is the future. I don't think sponsorships, I mean, this is maybe incorrect of me, but I don't think sponsorships is the future. I think alternative sort of types of sponsorships is the future, but I think broad sponsorship is hard because we, the way that we price things for our sponsors on our website is a percentage of page views. And so we don't actually guarantee a certain number of hits. We're not incentivized to do clickbaity headlines. It's just you pay for an allocation, yeah. a flat rate per percent per month, and then that's how it, it works. And the more website traffic we get, the more exposure you get. We succeed together. Again, trying to like create that win-win. Right. And then, but with the podcast, we've run into a lot of problems where people even we, we don't even have controversial guests yet on the podcast. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. But we've had people say, like, I don't want to be associated with that person. And I'm like, what? Like, that doesn't make sense to me right. at all. Yeah, looking at your list of guests, that's hard to picture. Oh, my that God. Happened. It's crazy. But but I want to move away from ads on the podcast. I want, I want to do a lot more with the podcast in terms of guests. And we do long-form conversations similar to you. There's not very many people in that sort of space where you can sit down and, you know, we had a two-and-a-half-hour episode once. We had yeah. a four-hour episode once. We broke it into two. yeah where people can get that sort of like depth of thinking, get to understand a person at different levels. Everything, oh, not everything, but so much of what we consume is just abstractions. It's not right. based on reflections of other people. It's sort of like, just tell me what to do. And then it's the same thing over and over again, right? And one of the things that I really appreciate about your podcast is the depth that goes into it, the questions, but also the space that you allow people to respond. You're not just looking for the soundbite, you're looking to understand. It really is a consequence of the format that people, I don't think, have good intuitions about because there's just a massive difference between, I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but there's a massive difference between having no time limit, 
you know, the conversation may last an hour and five minutes and having an hour time limit. That yeah. constraint of even long-form radio or yeah. long-form television, the longest possible form, is still a constraint. And it changes, it propagates backwards to the whole conversation. If, if, I, if I know I have to get through these questions I want to ask you in a standard amount of time, even if that's a really generous amount of time, it changes the nature of the conversation from the very beginning. And like we never even talked about time for this. No, we just you know, sat us yeah. our time. And so and we might we you know we're at like ninety minutes now or thereabouts. And it would be different had I known you know we have exactly ninety minutes to work with. And, and but a ninety minutes is an eternity when you consider the other media. And people are unaware, I think, generally of how much what they're hearing is the result of the unnatural time constraints through which every conversation is being forced. And this is a, now excruciating for me to just to see on, you know, in a, in a context like television news, like, you know, the talking heads on CNN, where, you know, you know that each person is fighting for their piece of an eight-minute slot. And there's just no way it can be an honest conversation, given that, that constraint. Yeah. I mean, what each guest has to do there is get the volley of words they have preloaded out. You go into a situation like that and you think, I just know that I'm going to feel terrible if I can't get this paragraph out. You come right. with these prepared statements Absolutely. that you interject yeah. whether it makes sense or and not. And it's just like, I just got to get this first fucking punch in. Yeah. Otherwise, this is going to be a waste of my day. Right? Yeah. So by definition, you're not disposed to be truly responsive to the thing the other person said first. And there's just no time to be responsive to anything that happens after that. I mean, you're basically, the whole goal is to not put your foot in your mouth and to say something that's useful to the thing you already thought you understood perfectly when you went on the show, right? It can never be a conversation because there's no room to breathe. From the viewer's point of view, that's rarely salient. Even for me, I just I see one person talk, and then I see the other person talk, and that's what he thinks, and that's what she thinks. And as came as no surprise, they didn't persuade each other at all, right? Mm. Because they're on the opposite sides of this question. And they were picked to be on the opposite sides of this question. I mean, in many cases, they were picked as the extreme voices on an issue that really admits of a massive amount of common ground for most people most of the time. So it gives this false signal of antagonism and the impossibility of resolution on various topics. And we keep advertising this impossibility to ourselves. Like, there's just, there's no way to figure out immigration. It's impossible to talk about, right? You're either a racist asshole or you're an open borders lunatic. And it goes back to that sandbox we were talking about earlier, where we need this place to sort of explore. And I, I think long form conversations yep. or podcasts are one of those spaces, but you also have to set the environment so that you can explore it. And how do you set that? And I think that's where sponsors sort of like fall off the chain because they don't want to be associated with that topic. I can't think of a sponsor right. other yeah. than like immigration <laughs> get, attorneys. Get, get me into the immigration debate. Right. Yeah. But it's it's a conversation worth having and it's a conversation worth thinking about in a thought experiment sort of way. And it's a conversation worth doing. And you need to create the environment where you can do that. And I think that that's what you've done. And, you know, we're sort of like fumbling through. Right. But I noticed this when I, when we talk about this 60 minutes, just to go back to this yeah. constraint on time, when I'm doing research on guests, I listen to other interviews that they've done. And it's the, it's the same stories that come out across those interviews. 
and they're coming in expecting to give the same stories. But when you when you approach them and say, I need like an open-ended time slot or I need three to five hours or I need this from you and the conversation might be 45 minutes and it might be three hours. We don't know. We're just going to see where it goes. I think that they come in with a different mentality and they elaborate a lot more uh, yeah. and they're not, they don't feel rushed, right? Like, so they haven't set an appointment for an hour later. They got to hop on their next call. They got to do their next thing, which you can sort of feel in people's responses when you're talking to them, right? As it's coming up to an hour, the responses get shorter. There's a lack of sort of like curiosity or in, inquisitiveness or playfulness on in the response. And so the open-ended, I think, is just way better format for learning, uh, not only about the person, but about how they think. And Yeah, the, the other decision I've made, which, again, has huge consequences, both good and bad, but I, I've decided not to stream live for interviews. And what that does is it, it, it obviously gives you an ability to edit, which just reduces the paranoia factor massively. So if you're talking to someone, mm. I mean, you and I didn't have this conversation in, in advance. I'm sure it was presupposed. But whenever I'm doing an interview that seems like it's likely to produce some some controversy. Are you saying Canadians aren't controversial? No, That's yeah, why no, we didn't yeah. talk about this. Well, yeah, well, we could debate that and then we'll, then we'll be right in the sweet spot. But when someone comes on to the podcast knowing that I'm going to be predisposed to disagree with them and it's going to have the character of a debate somehow, or likely. I say, you can always take your foot out of your mouth and, and we can take that again or, or cut the, you know, the last five minutes of whatever we were talking about. Because what I want is the best version of that person's argument. As much as I disagree with somebody, and, and they can be somebody who I really disagree with 100%, I want them to be happy with what they said. Right? Right. So there's like zero gotcha interview motive on my side. Telling the guest in advance that you say something that you think you're going to regret and you want, a, you, you want a, a mulligan, that's fine. Again, it lets the conversation breathe, and you do mm. get a, a different person shows up than tends to show up on a, a television interview. And so, and again, it's it's one of those things that whether you use it or not, it does change the conversation. I, I think it's indicative, like you and Tim and some of the other long form podcasts are the top ones in the world, right? And I think there's a reason for that, and I think people do actually appreciate that style of content a lot more even though it's, it's sort of like the illusion of learning when you get the short-form content. You're just getting the sound bites. Well, it's also just a very different ethic. Like, I occasionally... I mean, this, this happens in print interview a lot, you know, where you'll do a print interview, and it is really... It is the most hostile context in which to get your ideas out. It's always edited, radically edited, Sometimes a raw transcript of what you said is presented, so it's not edited enough to make you coherent. It's, it's I mean, people put in every um or I mean or I mean, it's just it's hostily verbatim, which is an all too common lazy practice now. And there's a there's this massive gotcha component because they will edit it down to very often the least charitable yet actually accurate version of what you said. I mean, this happened to me obviously, but I was just noticing it. Last night, I read a New Yorker interview with Brett Easton Ellis, who has a new book coming out and a podcast. And I don't know him. I don't follow him. I don't. I just happened to read this article or this interview about his new book. And the whole purpose of this thing was to harm his reputation. There was no other reason to put this text into the world. It was not interesting. 
it was a failed interview. He didn't have much to say on the topic that was being foisted on him, but that was being amplified. The thing was edited so as to make him look like someone who hasn't thought deeply about the thing he's ostensibly writing about. I guarantee you that 99 people out of 100 who read that interview didn't understand the subtext, which is the New Yorker decided to fuck him over. They just came away thinking, oh man, he's just, the guy just doesn't have his game together. That was weird and awkward and it didn't make him look good. And I'm not so sure I want to read his book because he hasn't really thought about this stuff deeply. How do you think it that was, happens? Was, was that a unethical. person at the New Yorker, or was that like the New Yorker writ large? Like, how, how did I think? It, I think it was both the writer in this case and with an agenda. Yeah, had an axe to grind against. It's not hard to see how this happened. Brett Easton Ellis, apparently, and again, I hadn't followed this, but he'd said some things against woke culture. I mean, he's. He, I don't think he, he's not right wing. Or at least I'm not aware of him being right wing at all. But he's said some of the same sorts of things I've said against the moral and political errors of the far left now in you know calling everyone a racist and seeing grievances everywhere, the victimology Olympics that we're all suffering through now. So he's made some statements of that sort. And so this, this writer who is fairly woke decided to go in there and put him in the most negative possible light. And I'm sure in the writer's defense, he, I'm sure, thought he was having a good faith conversation and just getting bad answers. But the framing of it and the editing of it was just calculated to make him look like a dunce on the topic that he had just written a book on. Because he was just saying, listen, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't have an answer for you. Right? But like all of this is being printed verbatim. It, even the way it's punctuated. You could either clean up his prose so that, because this is the dirty little secret of print interviews, which the journalist Janet Malcolm pointed out, Years ago, in a great book, The the Journalist and the Murderer, she made the point that if you're going to transcribe verbatim what your interview subject says, you are harming that person because in listening to someone speak, our ear naturally discounts for the false starts and the filler words and the errors that on the page look like symptoms of aphasia, right? I mean, yeah. you, you, you look highly inarticulate. When things are transcribed, some people more than more than others, obviously, the president of the United States is a special case <laughs> and probably deserves some of the lampooning he gets on this topic. But virtually anyone, no matter how well-spoken, has false starts and parentheticals that don't scan well when transcribed. And if you do that to them, you've got to know you're screwing them over. It's you're, just intentional. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's incredibly lazy or, or it's intentional. So anyway, but yeah, this is my particular hobby horse with print interviews, but they really are a risk unlike any other interview. I mean, even if you get edited on somebody's podcast or a radio interview or on television, at least what you're saying when you're saying it will get heard the way we hear people say things, right? right? Whereas when it gets you're transcribed... You're not changing mediums. Yeah, yeah, the change of medium can be brutal. All right, so I've... Just one more question for you before I hit you with some rapid-fire bonus questions. Uh, I feel like we may have covered this, but I, I just want to, on the odd chance that we haven't, what most concerns you about kind of the cultural changes we're seeing around us, and in particular our interaction with technology and how our lives are, are, are changing month over month now? 
I think one of my concerns is just how we're being manipulated without our sort of awareness or consciousness to it and how availability of material shapes what we see. So we, we don't, we don't tend to follow people we don't agree with. We don't tend to seek out information that's going to disconfirm our beliefs. The internet facilitates the acceleration of more of what you are and more of what you think. And I think, you know, where we're possibly headed with the future is like you and I will go to the New York Times and we'll read the same article, but that article will actually be written differently based on your browser and my browser. Yeah. It's going to know Sam Harris is there and Shane Parrish is there and you lean this way and I lean this way. And the phrasing and the framing of that article, even though the core of it might be the same, like the stats will might change. And I, I think that that worries me a lot in terms of where we're going. I think these tools, which could make it more possible to have constructive sandboxes of thinking where you can explore ideas without worrying about repercussions of thinking something and thinking out loud. I think that that's going away. And I think everything lives forever. Uh, whether you, you type something on Twitter and you delete it because you change your mind or it's never really deleted. We never want to be judged at our worst moment. And now our worst moment, I mean, you can reach millions of people in your worst moment. And I think that you, you talked about this before on several of the episodes in terms of like, what is the means to sort of come back from that? Is there a means? Is there a mechanism to do that? Is that on an individual level? Does society have to agree? Is there some sort of established criteria for doing that? I don't, I don't know. I mean, all of this stuff worries me. But what really is, is the, the meta problem there is like we're becoming more hardened in our own beliefs mm. and... I think it's harder for us to get out of that because we can't explore them. And so not only are we surrounding ourselves with people who think more and more like us, because we, we, we have this sort of like, it's almost like people who think differently than us are a virus and we're worried that they're going to infect us with their thinking. And so we don't even want to hang around them. And then online makes that super easy because you, you follow people, you elect what you're seeing. And I think that we're just getting a non-representative view of the world. And so our view of the world, whatever that lens is, whatever your political leaning is, whatever your socioeconomic status is, it's just not representative of the broader population and the broader world and the broader thinking that exists. And I would love to see technology move towards an avenue where we can facilitate thoughtful discussions, conversations where you can say things that may not be politically correct and not worry about the ramifications because you're exploring an idea versus stating this is what I believe. And I don't think we have the mechanism to sort of like distinguish between those things. And I would also mm. like to see sort of, and, and this becomes really interesting, right? So should Twitter or Facebook like interject people who are like the opposite of you in your feed? Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't know where I stand on that issue. I mean, that's also like, I'm there, I'm using a platform. What is the obligation of that platform? I don't know the answer to those questions, but I do think that they're definitely worth thinking about. I'm continually rethinking my engagement with these platforms. It's really, for me, it's only Twitter. I don't really, I don't use Facebook or Instagram in any way that 
that is normal or that gets me in trouble. But Twitter keeps hooking me. The other day, I, I got into trouble in a way that was disconcerting because my solution for closing the door to all the pain that Twitter causes me is to just not look at what's coming back at me. Right? So I'll put something out there. So And not, to not look at my at mentions does seem like a almost a perfect remedy for, I mean, it's basically the way I use Facebook. I just push something out there and don't look at the comments. But with Twitter, I follow a lot of people, so I'm, I'm using them to curate my news diet, and that, you know, that seems like a, a good use of it. And I'm following some people who I disagree with, too, but it's interesting to see what they're doing. But in this case, I someone sent me a Wall Street Journal op-ed, which seemed totally reasonable to me. It was written by somebody who had been, he said, defamed by the Southern Poverty Law Center, who's also attacked me and my friend Majid Nawaz, for which they were forced to pay Majid $3 million in a settlement. So they, the, this, I know the Southern Poverty Law Center, while it used to be this a great arbiter of you know who's on the far right, is now just, in the most scattershot way, smearing everyone in sight and can't be relied on. And that's something, that's a, a message I've wanted to continue to get out for obvious reasons. And so this was an op-ed written by someone who had had his life totally upended by being called a, you know, a merchant of hate or whatever by the Southern Poverty Law Center, whereas on his account, he was just someone, he was a lawyer who had been hired to defend the baker who had, wouldn't, didn't want to bake the wedding cake for the gay couple. I don't know if that reached Canada, but that was a big news story in the, in the U.S. I went to the Supreme Court, didn't it? I forgot. I think it might have gone to the Supreme Court. We don't have any problems in Canada. No. Anyway, so this lawyer wrote this piece, and I, it seemed like a totally reasonable piece, and it's in the Wall Street Journal, which is a, apart from the fact that the Murdochs own it, is a, it's still a well-regarded newspaper. And I forwarded it on Twitter, and it just so happened that I did look at what was coming back at me. And what was coming back at me was just an avalanche of hatred and just incredible disappointment from people who ostensibly like me that I would forward a article written by somebody who was just oh, a man. crazy extremist on the you know the Christian right who who apparently you know represents an organization that not only is against gay marriage but thinks homosexuality should be illegal. I mean they want to criminalize sodomy and you know any sexual act that that a, a gay person would be involved in. What seems to be the case now is we're living in a world where unless you fact check the Wall Street Journal yeah. and figure out yeah, yeah. what they're not telling you about the person who they platformed. I had the, the same thing happen recently where we, we sent out a newsletter and it goes out to hundreds of thousands of people every Sunday. Right. And I just got these replies like, I'm disappointed in you. Didn't you know this guy was like convicted of a crime when he was like 22 or something? And it's like, no, I didn't know that. Right. Would that change the fact that I exposed you to this? No. Should it change the fact that I expose you to this? I don't know, right? Like, you, we're, we're so bound to think about things at really almost awkward levels, yeah. right? Where And disappointment is the worst thing somebody can say to me. Like, I yeah, don't know, yeah. like, for out of all the statements... It's a great me, hack of the, the emotional yeah, body. you can call me an asshole. You yeah. can be like, I'm unsubscribing. I don't want to ever see you again. It doesn't phase me at all. It used to. It doesn't phase me at all, but right. if you tell me you're disappointed in me, man, like, I don't know, that still gets to me. Right. And like you, I mean, I don't, I try not to go through these comments because it has an effect on me. And you're, you're if you think of your environment it has an effect, not only on your decisions and your habits, um, but it has an effect on your quality of life. 
And if your environment's online, that's still an environment. You're still exposed to, and I mean, you're in a unique position where you have, you know, a million Twitter followers. So you're exposed to a lot of people who are just following you to troll you, right? Yeah. They're not following you because they know Sam Harris or they're following you because they like Sam Harris. They're following you because they're, you know, possibly jealous of your success or envious, or they just want to take you down a peg and they don't know anything about you as a person. They don't know, they, they don't really engage in the content. They're just there to comment. It is a fairly toxic lesson in trying to utilize, you know, one of your rules here, you know, Hanlon's razor, yeah. where you're, you to not attribute to malice what could be explained by other factors, but rather often having that principle of charity seem to be disconfirmed, right? Where you just, there's no way this person doesn't understand my view and they're still misrepresenting it. Some people are just dicks, right? And yeah. you get exposed to... Like, if you think of a million people on Twitter following you, some percentage of those people are just going it to just actually be a tiny have percentage, ill yeah. intent, but they're yeah. going to be very visible to you. So you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to have a hard time tipping between these two models where there is some percentage of people who well, follow you. Even if it were just 1%, it would be 10,000 dicks, right? So exactly. it, it, it's just, a, that's a lot, that's a lot of hate. So, yeah. How did I, that affect you? Like, how did you walk away from reading that inadvertently that... People are disappointed in you for, for sort well, of I actually, exposing this, them. This was one of those cases where I felt like, okay, had I known oh, you wouldn't what have. this organization was, I wouldn't have forwarded his article. Does that mean we can't learn from I people know, that we I disagree know I don't with? have the bandwidth to live in a world where I have to research the biographies of people who yeah. write op-eds in major newspapers before I forward an op-ed, which in the confines of the article is making a good point. Do but what was interesting here is that I, had I not been looking at what was coming back at me, I would have never known what was unfolding. And there was real reputational damage happening because thousands of people were assuming that I hate the Southern Poverty Law Center so much for purely petty, self-serving reasons that I'm willing to promote someone who thinks homosexuality should be illegal. Right? Like That's how it was being summarized in their world. And that's just an awful punchline and so yeah i felt i needed to walk it back on twitter but let's pull this up one level though which is do you feel like you have a burden for what you share in terms of your fact checking on it as a media outlet you are you you as a person are a brand you are a media outlet you have a bigger reach than most newspapers is there an obligation for you to do that work you can't hide behind retweets don't equal endorsements, as many people do, because we all know that's bullshit. I mean, we know the spirit in which someone is retweeting something. Now, you can be retweeting something where it's obvious you don't support it. It's just, this is so weird, I'm going to forward it, right? But we also know when you're retweeting something because you do support it. And in this case, I did support it, right? I mean, this was a making a point that I agreed with or was testifying to an experience that, that I have shared. So once, once your error is exposed, you can't say, well, retweets don't equal endorsements, right? I mean, there are people who smear other people just by circulating their bad press, making no effort to... But are you endorsing everything or are you endorsing no. an idea within that right. article? I mean, so this is, again, this is a kind of a liminal case where you could have a, an article written by the Unabomber and you're not you're not supporting the Unabomber, but this is the thing that he wrote was interesting, say, right? Uh, I mean, that's an extreme case, but 
there's an argument to make about judging a point on its merits, and it almost doesn't matter who made it. In this case, it was a grayer area than that because it's, it wasn't even clear this person was representing his experience and his angle in the world, honestly. And what was happening is that, at minimum, it was a failure of the Wall Street Journal to responsibly curate their opinion page because the naive reader, who in this case was me, thought, well, this is a normal lawyer who's just getting smeared as a, as a hate preacher, whereas it seems like he was not an especially normal lawyer in terms of the causes that he's focused on. You know, It's easy to see how those causes could be viewed as hateful if you're trying to get homosexuality made illegal. So here's a lawyer who's envisioning prison sentences for people for being gay, right? This is not normal behavior. Everything is, has become so hyper-politicized in journalism, and everyone has an axe to grind, and they're prosecuting these skirmishes in the context of what should be a journalistically balanced—I mean, this, this, in this case, this was actually an opinion piece, but even in journalistic articles, or what purport to be on the journalism side of the paper, you often find people advocating— for a, a kind of a purely partisan view of some domain of facts. And it's, I don't I mean, maybe, maybe we're all just discovering how bad journalism always was, but I, I share the sense that things have gotten a lot worse in recent years. It doesn't seem to me like I'm just waking up to the nature of the problem. It just seems like the, the business models are in flux and so many organizations are in free fall and desperate for clicks and... Everyone is in the clickbait game because of the ad model we've talked about, and it's just incentivizing all the wrong things. Yeah, I think that not only is it bad for journalism, I think it's actually bad for consumers as well, and we don't realize it's bad for us. We don't feel like there's an obligation to contribute to things that cost money and are valuable to us because we feel like it should be free. And I I think that that expectation sort of needs to go away. And we, we need to provide space for people to do things that are non-standard, that are different, that, you know, they're not going to be perfect, but they're, they're going to be a different trusted source. And we need to make that possible, right? That aren't yeah. part of a major media establishment, that aren't part of sort of this ecosystem that exists as it exists today. Before we close out, I want I have, a, I think, nine rapid-fire bonus questions, if you're up for it. Sure. So rapid fire, I just respond. Yeah, really I mean, quickly. You, you, you don't have to be. It doesn't have to be one sentence, but just okay. uh, just as short as you like. If you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, and you can define your field however you want, what would it be? Delay gratification. What if anything do you wish you'd done differently in your twenties? Spent more time developing meaningful relationships. People don't tell you that the relationships you make early in life tend to be your lifetime friendships. And there are some exceptions to this. People can find great friends later in life, but uh, there's a massive legacy effect in, in who you surround yourself with I, I early got in life. Caught up in what, you know, I, I would assume most people get caught up with, which is like, I got out, I got a job. Got a school, got a job, had a, a girlfriend who became my wife, who's now my ex-wife. 
and went to work and I love my job and we were involved in like post 9-11 so I worked six days a week like massive amount of hours yeah and I don't necessarily regret any of that but I do regret not investing more in the relationships that were close to me 10 years from now what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in your life I think I'll regret more exposure to me individually you'll regret becoming more famous or well-known or yeah yeah i i think that uh that's something where i've consciously been over the last six months actually pulling back on Interesting. in terms of like after that new york times article yeah that was that had to be a big change it's so like the instagram account didn't become my name like the newsletter doesn't have my name on it anymore i'm just sort of slowly pulling that back into i don't want this to be about me anyway but it, it's definitely i've seen some of the the more negative aspects of maybe notoriety, which I'm sure you get a ton of all the time, like just in terms of inbound requests, like my yeah. email, yeah. The, the, the frequency at which I'm getting email propositions or speaking engagements or all of this stuff is quite significant now. And it's quite time consuming just to respond to that. And when I'm doing that, I'm not doing the things that I want to be doing. I'm not adding value in the way that I want to be adding value. And I'm not living the life that I want to be living by responding to more email. And I feel guilty about saying no. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's something you got to get over. I mean, the thing you, you, I feel guilty about now is not even responding. I mean, I, and I, have, I have a team that is helping me now, but email is increasingly a broken channel. Oh, yeah. One of, one of the things that I did to get out of this guilt of saying no is I get people to say no to me. And mm-hmm. so we, uh, for speaking engagements, I, just, I only want to do six a year. So right. we just price it accordingly. Yeah. And then yeah. most people just opt out based on the price. And then I don't feel bad saying no to them. Yeah. It becomes them, them opting out, which somehow makes me feel better. I don't know why. Because <laughs> you, you can always decide to do something for free or for less. But if you set your price irrationally high, most of what you want to say no to anyway just goes away. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's a good filter. What book should everyone read? Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Yeah. That's a great one. The Hayes translation. If you're listening and you want to go look it up, I found that one. Is that the it's like the penguin paperback or Yeah, with the like the red bird I think right. on the front. Yeah. yeah. But the translation makes a huge difference for that book, or at least it did for me. So. Right. What negative experience, one that you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? Divorce. Yeah. And so like I would never never wish divorce on anybody. I would never want to go through it again myself. I think it's it caused me to reevaluate what I wanted out of life, what I wanted out of a relationship. It caused me to remember that I'm an individual with preferences outside of a relationship. And it, it sort of had this massive positive impact on my life. I'm much mm. happier now. Mm. But that said, like, it was terrible it experience. Sucks. Yeah. yeah. And you have kids as well? I have two kids, yeah. Mm. So nine and eight, about to be ten and nine. Mm-hmm. And... One of my biggest, biggest fears with this whole thing was not the quality of my relationship with my ex. It's actually the impact on the kids. Yeah. And it turned out in hindsight, I don't know, like every kid responds differently. So it's it's sort of like, it's almost like a vaccine. Like, you know, the probabilistic outcome and you know, there's going to be problems, but you don't know the problem, like where the problems are going to exist. And my kids have handled it exceptionally well. It's, It's four years ago now, almost five years ago. And had I known that, I, I probably would have thought a bit differently about it at the time, but it's right. worked out really well. That's great to hear, and no doubt that was excruciating. If you could solve just one mystery, 
what would it be? This could be as a journalist or historian or scientist or... Climate change. Not the mystery of whether or not it exists, but just how to solve for the big The problem. mystery of like what is, what are the things that we should be doing today that'll give the best chance of sort of dampening or reducing or reversing, if that's even possible, right. what's happening. Yeah, on some level it is a messaging problem more than it is anything else. It's just like how to even have a conversation that converges on some set of outcomes that that a majority of people acknowledge they want can i i'm actually going to change my answer i like that answer but i want to change it to the mystery i want to solve is how do we equalize opportunity for everybody all over the world not outcomes but opportunity right and that would be i think the bigger bang for the buck so to speak if you could resurrect just one person from history and put them in the world today and give them the benefit of a modern education who would you bring back oh richard Feynman. Yeah, you, you wouldn't guy. have to update his education very much. You wouldn't have to, no, definitely not. But I mean, yeah, I, I miss that guy. I yeah. miss his irreverence. I miss his ability to stand up to authority. I miss his ability to explain things clearly. His ability to think through problems at a first principle level is, you know, there's so much of that man that I admire. I never met him. He's just before my time, but he's on everyone's short list of brilliant, charismatic, important people who... Just think of what he did on the, the Challenger Commission, right? Yeah, where, no, that was, he that refused testimony to sign was awesome. his name unless they gave him the ability to speak. Yeah. And having worked in government at a very senior level, I can tell you that that happens not very often, and it should happen a lot more than it does. And I think that just that speaks to his sort of integrity towards the scientific process and his integrity to what he thinks. He might be wrong, but he's willing to stand up on a ledge and tell people about it. And we're sort of going through something in Canada politically. I don't even follow politics that much, but we're going through this with the um, Jody Wilson-Raybould. I don't know if you follow Canadian politics at all. She was the former attorney general and, you know, she got ousted from parliament and allegedly there was parliamentary pressure for her to take a certain prosecutorial path. She ended up recording a conversation with the clerk of the Privy Council, which is the highest non-elected official in the Canadian government. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting sort of parallel to this. And it's not about whether she was right or wrong. It's she stood up for what she believed in. And I think that the federal public service needs more people. The federal servants, we need more leaders that are willing to do that, even if they're wrong. I just think we need more people willing to feel that they can do that. Okay, last question. The Jurassic Park question. If we're ever in a position to recreate the T-Rex, should we do it? No. (laughs) Okay. So you want to keep the mosquitoes and not resurrect the T-Rex? I don't want to mess with Mother Nature and, like, the last few million years. Right. So, yeah, I think that's that's opening it up. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I think we're probably going to eradicate the mosquitoes and we're going to resurrect something like a T-Rex. I think that's where, judging from the poll I've taken on this podcast, that's where the sentiments lie. Let's revisit this in a thousand years and we'll we'll see what sort of second and third order effects that had that we didn't anticipate. Yeah. One thing you you mentioned, which we didn't touch, but I just want to put out there so that people understand what you're doing. You said you're doing events. What what kind of events do you do? We do three events a year. Uh, right now. We're going to do more next year, but we do a rethink decision-making. We get people together and we talk about decision-making. So we get people from finance, professional sports, technology companies, 
So is this like an invitation only no, conference? No, we, or we sell 50 tickets. We keep the event super small. Uh-huh. It usually sells out fairly quickly um, within like a day or two. And we just get together and talk about decision making. We expose you to different types of people who are just as thoughtful and kind and sort of considerate as you are, but work in a different industry so it can give you different lenses on your problems. Right. We do one around innovation, same thing. We keep it to 50 people, no more. We found that an event bigger than 50 people it changes the dynamic of how you feel being at the event. So you walk into the event and we've done them with 55 and 60 people and you, you start clicking up and we notice this where people don't actually feel like they can get to know everybody in the room. But if it's like 48 people, you somehow magically, and I haven't seen any sort of studies on this, but it, in our experience, you you feel like you can get to know everybody, and so you move around and you get to know different people. That's really interesting because I I've noticed that, and and I don't know again I don't know if there's any research on this, but I've noticed that if a meeting is past some magic number or an event is past some magic number, even if it goes on for days, even if it's a three day event, there's a sense that I have internally of there's some people here I'm just I don't have time to meet. You you have the people you met early in the meeting and it just kind of stays there yeah and it's uh interesting to consciously not pass that threshold and we we learned this just through trial and error because events are high fixed cost right so we were trying to put a few more people in right uh and we noticed the quality um of the conversations so one of the outcomes we want for participants is they get to know other people um, not necessarily that they just learn something from us, but they get to meet people that they share something in common with, that they develop a relationship with outside of that event. And we noticed that wasn't happening. Yeah. And then the other event that we do is this, we do two a year, one one sort of private and one public, which is 10 people. It's like super intimate. Um, basically, uh, it's been in Europe or sort of Cape Cod every year. And we have people come in, you bring a problem to the table. So you get challenged with sort of, I'm going to, I'm struggling with this. And I can give you some examples of problems that we talked about um, in a second. And then you get the floor for an hour. So what I do is I curate a group of 10 people that are thoughtful and different than you and diverse. And they're going to provide advice on your your problem Mm -hmm. or your situation. And part of the commitment is you do research beforehand on people's problems and what they're struggling with and where they've sort of like gone down the rabbit hole and so that you can show up and add value. And then that person gets to sort of take the reins for an hour. And so you get to facilitate a conversation for an hour with, you know, effectively nine strangers, although you become fairly intimate fairly quickly. And one of the things that people get out of that is super interesting because if you think about work and you go to somebody and you ask for advice on a problem you're dealing with at work or even a friend and you ask for advice, most people, and I'm not, I'm going to generalize here because it's probably not every person or it's not every person, but they're going to give you advice, but it's only relative to them. So they want you to succeed, but not too much, or they want you to fail, but not fail so much. And, and the, one of the ways that you can sort of think about this, or if you're having trouble sort of like believing it is like, when's the last time somebody at work came up to you and said, do you want to know the one thing holding you back? I can tell you, mm. but I bet you most people at work in your close circle, probably know the one thing holding you back from... Yeah, or at least, or at least think they do. They have or at opinion. least think yeah. they do, yeah. right? But they're still not talking about it with you, which is interesting. And so people come to these events to get unbiased, not unbiased, that's the wrong word, but get feedback that's not sort of constrained by a relative outperformance with mm. other people. And so people come with um, 
you know, my parents want me to take over this company and it, we sort of have Chatham House rules, so I'm not going to tell you sort of like who the people are, but my parents want me to take over this company. I want to become a VC. Like, how should I think about this problem from different perspectives? You know, I want to get divorced or I'm thinking about getting divorced. Like, how should I think about that? What are the implications right. of that? So each each participant has their hour. Each participant has an hour. And, yeah. and we also have topics where we started this last year, which is really interesting, where somebody showed up and they were like, data privacy, right? And they facilitated a conversation on sort of like data privacy. And you get these nine other articulate, smart, well thought out views in a deeper mechanism than you're going to get online, in a more diverse way than you're going to get from reading a book, and in a more feedback oriented way, because you can change directions. Mm -hmm. And, and, and how long is a meeting like that? So those are, we, we start them on a Thursday night. We do dinner, sort of drinks and dinner. We have all day Friday and all day Saturday. We do five sessions on Friday, five sessions on Saturday, and then a goodbye brunch on Sunday morning. Wow. That's a great format. It's super intense. And coming back to business models, though, which is really sort of something we had talked about earlier in the show, it's, it's hard to copy because so much of what I do by putting stuff on the website is easy for other people to... And ideas, you, you can't sort of trademark an idea, and I don't want to. There's nothing on that website. There's nothing that we've talked about today that came from me. I've just learned this from other people, right. but I also have to like figure out a way to make a living that makes it hard for people to copy what I'm doing. And one of the ways that I do that is think about things that are harder to copy. And experiences, you know, physical events, that is one place where there's an obvious scarce resource right and it's it, not fungible and the events started scalable. because yeah. i wanted to meet people like me who read farnham street but i can't put a sign on my door saying like hey if you're smart curious and like to read like knock on my door because that's you know societally unacceptable but if you host an event you're going to attract those people right and then it's it sort of um it's become this thing in and of itself where We've had parents at our events reconnect where a father and a daughter had stopped speaking and the sister bought them both tickets oh, really? to the event. Right. And wow. so the, this was their connection. They, they didn't realize before they came that they both read Farnham Street. And so they show up and like they're surprised to find each other. But they ended up reestablishing their relationship uh, as a result of that. Amazing. Well, uh, listen, Shane, it's really been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for coming down here and, and doing it in person. Awesome. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you. Yeah.